This week, we welcome Neil Bridges, Chief Information Security Officer at Query.ai, to discuss the contrasting role of the CISO at startups versus enterprises. In the leadership and communications section, CISOs embrace a common business language to report on cybersecurity, the strategic impact of Verizon's 2022 data breach investigations report, make shy employees part of your cybersecurity strategy, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. Cloud security compliance doesn't have to be complicated. Whether your business is migrating to the cloud or a seasoned cloud service provider, our advisory can help you simplify security and compliance frameworks, including SOC, ISO, and HITRUST. As an extension of your team, our specialists will put your people first and empower them with the knowledge and tools needed to stay secure and compliant at every stage of your business growth. Learn how BAR can help your company build trust with consumers and become cyber resilient at securityweekly.com forward slash bar advisory. That's B-A-R-R advisory. Cyber criminals are working overtime. Last year in the fourth quarter alone, phishing attacks disguised as COVID testing information increased by 521%. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Find out about the 13 email threat types and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. Get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. It's time to rethink how we approach cybersecurity because the reality is modern cyber attackers are already past your initial defenses. ExtraHop helps your security team find and eradicate advanced threats before real damage is done. Protect your enterprise and customers with better defense. Learn more about how ExtraHop stops advanced threats at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's extra H-O-P. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 271, recorded August 1st, 2022. I am your host, Matt Alderman. Joining me are my co-hosts remotely today. First, Mr. Jason Albuquerque. Welcome, Jason. Hey, what's going on, Matt? We finally got some rain here in New England. It's been jungle hot for the last couple of weeks. It's been sweltering. We finally got some rain. I don't know. My grass is so brown, I don't think this is going to revive it, honestly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We, re- we review those suggestions often and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. Neil, Brid- uh, Neil Bridges brings more than two decades of cybersecurity experience to his role as Chief Information Security Officer at Query.ai, where he is responsible for leading the company's security strategy and operations and guiding product development efforts to help customers achieve their desired security outcomes. Throughout his career, Neil has helped federal and commercial organizations develop and execute cybersecurity strategies and has built teams at multiple Fortune 100 companies. Neil is the founder of Cyber Insecurity Podcast, where he discusses the latest cyber news and trends and gives career advice to listeners who are new to the cybersecurity industry. Neil, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Thanks, Matt, Jason, and Ben for having me. I really do appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. It's always good to have a fellow podcaster on. We don't really cover the news on this one because we talk leadership and communication, but that's okay. They can check out the news, I guess, on on, on your podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. And I try to give a, a, a no BS kind of assessment as to what's happening in the world. You know that there's so much uh, hype and FUD and and you know marketing stuff that goes on behind uh, most of these uh, the, these podcasts that happen out there that we try to be really straight and direct and to the point. Love it. So do we. Uh, It's been our philosophy here at Security Weekly for a very long time. (laughs) All right. So we're going to talk about the CISO role and how it contrasts between startups and enterprises. Let me guess. Uh, Resources, budgets, culture. Like, where do we start? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you, you've named all the easy ones, obviously. I, 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 we really could start anywhere. I, I think that that's, that's the beauty of it is that I, I don't think many people oftentimes understand the, the depth of differences that exist out there. As a matter of fact, I would even argue, and I, I did a piece on this recently, um, most people still think that you, know, you don't need a CISO until you get to a certain revenue model or a certain number of customers or a certain funding stage when you're out there doing the, the funding value. And it's amazing to, to, to see just how much the CISO can actually have a positive impact on an organization early stage startup versus waiting until you've got to deal with some of these big enterprise issues um, and realizing that it's too late. Yeah, I, I, I imagine so. So what is that threshold? Is it one? <laughs> <laughs> How many employees uh, do you need before you need a CISO, Neil? You, you know, and, and again, I, I I don't think it's fair to to talk in absolutes because I think every organization has to value it differently. But what I would say is that you, you made an interesting point when you read out my bio. You talked about the product management side of that. And I think that that's, that's interesting to key in on because when you typically think CISO, you, um, you typically think about the cybersecurity sides of things. But when you're looking at some of these early stage startups, I think a lot of folks who are building inside the security space are missing the need of having a CISO that can also act as a SME. When you start talking about the decades of experience um, you know, that most CISOs bring to the table, that decades of experience can then also come and help drive a lot of the product influence and make sure that it's actually solving real-world needs um, that you're trying to go to market with. And we talk a little bit about the, uh, the marketing FUD that comes in with some of these security companies that, that come out on the, uh, on, on the space. And I think that it's, it adds a lot of credence to your product development. So Outside of just the cybersecurity responsibilities that a CISO can have, that product management, or not necessarily product management, but at least product SME and product influence role, I think will, I think is equally as important to that job description. So to, to answer your question more directly, I think you know once you've gotten to a, a, a phase where you're starting to reach out, get clients, whether it's for a beta or a design partner phase, once you're you're actually out there interfacing with a, with a broader populace, I think it's really time to really have that conversation because you're probably going to start getting third party risk forms from potential clients. You're going to start having to have SOC 2 compliance requirements that you're going to have to meet. And then on top of that, having that validation from that SME from a product perspective is going to be instrumental to your success as a startup. Yeah. And, and Neil, I mean, a lot of folks, when the, you know when you start having conversations around the need for having a cybersecurity expert, whether it be a CISO, um, you know, on an FTE type basis, that's not always necessarily the case. I've seen a lot of organizations who start their way down the path with a contractor. They'll bring in a third party who acts as a, a you know, staff augmentation in the CISO role. They'll spend three days a week working for them. And then eventually they mature to the, to, you know, getting to the point where they need a full time CISO. So they'll ease their way into it. And at the same time, have that expertise there waiting, you know, and, and helping them along the way and being that um, product management resource and cybersecurity and compliance resource. I think that that's fair. Um, I, I have a I have a love hate relationship with this concept of VC so, which I think is what you're describing, right? I think if you if you look at the VC so, to your point, as a long tail contractor that ultimately gives you a stepping stone into an FTE sitting in that role, I think it's fair if used right. Um, one of the things that I caution folks on when they start to look at the VC so role is that those folks are not typically vested personally necessarily in the success or failure of your business. And on top of that, you're competing for time with an unknown number of other, you know, potential consultees that they're dealing with as well. And so I think it just depends on where you're at in that development cycle, where maybe you're early on and you only want maybe five to 10 hours worth of consulting on a monthly basis that you can afford. Um, you know, but, but I think that that oftentimes becomes kind of like my, my, you know, internal risk suggestion that I give to folks is where are you at in that development yeah. cycle? Yeah. Again, you know, I mentioned it as a staff augmentation role, not a, not an FTE, yeah. right? Because you have to yeah. mature into that full-time employee role, having someone yeah. on staff, but if it, you know, I, I consider no action in action. And if you have nothing, um, you're in a, you're in a very bad spot, right? So yeah, one is, one is always greater than zero, you got, right? You got it. You're 100%. So, you know, bring, you know, if, if the appetite of the organization is that they don't want to invest in an FTE, bring the case to the table yeah. of, Hey, listen, let's bring someone on a few days a week in a consultative role. And then we can mature into having a full-time CISO. 
Yeah, and I think I think what I would add to that, you know, suggestion as well is have an exit strategy that says when we reach this point, this is when we're going to mature up to that to that FTE. Yeah, absolutely, create that milestone, right? That that once you that's that right, that's right. You, you flip. Have a have a nice clear line in the sand. Otherwise, you'll end up with a lot of scope creep, and it'll end up dragging out for a lot longer than you probably intend for yeah, it. Makes to. total sense. Yeah. yeah, and I I think maturity is part of this. Obviously, you got to set those milestones, Neil. But the role differs a little bit. When, when I think about a startup, I think part of that is more outbound CISO versus inbound CISO a little bit, right? Because you're there to to help customers answer questions around the security of the platform, potentially if if you're in the product space, right? Because I, I know a lot of the CISOs and and you know Ben was in this role for a while. They're more evangelistic outbound kind of CISOs, where when you get to the enterprise, you're thinking more inbound, internal structures as well. So how does the how does the role kind of differ between the skill set you're looking for in a startup versus an enterprise? Because I think the outbound versus inbound is part of that equation, right? I think that's a fantastic point, but I want to disagree with you. Um, you know, I think that the inbound is just as important as a startup phase as the outbound mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, I'll give you a case in point. There, there is a stigma that we have when we go to talk about CISOs and we go to talk about their role in enterprises, oftentimes being obstructionist. We oftentimes are the office of the no. We've got this really bad stigma that kind of comes along with us when we, when we talk about having a CISO, especially in the enterprise. Um, I had a CISO, really good mentor of mine, uh, a number of years ago that I worked for who said that our role really is to enable the business to take risk. And that's a lot harder to get across to an enterprise that's a few thousand people. People, you'd be surprised how easy it is to get that message across to an organization that may be 15, 20, or 25 people. Um, and I can unequivocally tell you that if you actually position yourself with the development teams, because you're probably going to be very development-friendly if we go back to a, a product-focused business where you've got you know 65% of your organization is engineers or developers, where you can actually be a partner with those engineers and a partner with those developers to build security as a culture from the ground up versus waiting you know, until you get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm done being the evangel. Now I'll look internal to to handle my enterprise security. You absolutely can and should be doing them both in parallel. Mm. And you'll actually create a culture of security inside your organization when you start small. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Neil. I mean, that's that's how I built my career. I was an internal enterprise CISO who started getting pulled into sales meetings and customer facing meetings mm-hmm. and, you know, becoming an evangelist for cybersecurity for the organization. And I, you know, I would have sales executives come in and be like, wow, you're such a great salesperson. You really know how to evangelize. And I'm like, my answer to them is no, I know the operations of this organization. I have confidence in it so I can portray that mm-hmm. confidence. And if that's a sales tool, so be it. But it's because I can speak to the reality of what we bring to the table. So walk, walk and it's because you've, you've, you, you focused internally and you said, I'm going to build this right. culture up. I, I, we've had meetings with our devs. We've, we've hired exponentially our dev force uh, over the last you know six months here at Query. And I have meetings with our devs and we have security meetings. We talk about changes that we're going to have from a security perspective. We talk about how can I not necessarily tell you no, but when you tell me what, you, what it is that you need, how do I tell you, okay, this is how we right. get there. This is how we get there in a secure fashion. And we've created a real partnership between security and development that to your point, this is the excellent point, I can go to our customers and feel incredibly confident about what we're doing from a security perspective. When I have to do those TPRM forms, I know everything about our infrastructure and it makes it super easy and super confident for me to fill out 100%. Yeah, love filling out those third-party risk management forms <laughs> for all those. Who- that, is, that is literally, I, I, I hate it. I, I will make fun of TPRM all day Agreed. long. <laughs> That's where I started my compliance career uh, years ago. And, and I think you talk about this a little bit, you know, compliance does not equal security. So, you know, yeah. it, it, when you're in the enterprise, right, sometimes compliance was the primary driver. How does how do you manage through that shift? Because I think that's a very interesting shift for the CISO is if you're highly regulated and, and compliance is a tail that wags that dog, how do you shift mm-hmm. from that mindset to a real security mindset and figuring out how security becomes the primary driver for the program and not compliance? And again, maybe I think this is easier in a startup than it is in it. When you look at some of the Fortune 100 companies that I've worked for in the past, compliance is definitely what, what you know, the, the tail that wags that dog, as you put it. But it's oftentimes 
easier to push an enterprise towards compliance because everybody can nod their head up and down and say, yes, I need to do this. GDPR, everybody came together when it came to GDPR and recognized that they had to do it because of a 15% penalty. You know, CCPA, same situation. If you're regulated in financial industry, everybody knows that you have to do PCI DSS. And so everybody nods their head up and down and says, yes, I have to do this. When you get down to a smaller company like a startup, I don't think I personally don't think that that is as big of a deal in a smarter, smaller startup because, to your point, if you're participating with the teams, if you're enabling them to take risks, if you're making their jobs easier and you're not trying to put up a bunch of boundaries and put up a bunch of no's and trying to inhibit their ability to do product development, you can actually teach them how to do security by design, security in their SDLC lifecycle, security as a daily practice, and that actually makes the compliance conversation much easier. We're obviously going through our SOC 2 here at here at Query, and I can tell you that, that it's easier for me to complete SOC to with an organization that when I say, no, we must have MFA on everything, they do it just like that because they understand that security is important. And so I would argue that all the things that you know a typical CISO tries to accomplish in three years at an organization, because let's be realistic, right? The, the three-year life cycle is still very, very real in CISO life. You get one year to kind of get your feet underneath you, get a feel for the land, develop your strategy, figure out what it is you're going to do in an organization, pick one or two things that you're going to try to be successful at. Year two, you're, you're hauling tail trying to make those one or two things as successful as possible. And then the last year, you're planning your exit strategy so that you can leave before there's a breach, before you get, you know, you know, pigeonholed into a corner that you're not going to be able to do anything else, right? That's very much life in, in, in that, in that world. And I, and I think that you have more of an opportunity to say, I want to do secure by design. I want to do SDLC the right way. I want to have, you know, code, you know, scanning built into my repositories from the ground up, MFA across the board. I want to have all my endpoints, including everything that's in my server infrastructure with EDR on them, right? All the things that you want to do, inventory, software bills, material, you have an opportunity to do that in a startup from ground zero, which I think you'll never, ever, ever be able to achieve in some of these larger enterprises. Yeah, it'll it'll take it'll take those last two years to even begin to execute on things in a larger organization because of the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. because of you know all the, the the political pieces of the puzzle, and you know it takes forever to accomplish. It's you know it's moving that proverbial ship in the ocean, right? I mean the aircraft carrier. So absolutely correct. You're more agile and more nimble in a in a startup. And and I think that that I think that that sets a different mindset when you think about that from a career perspective. You know, there's a lot of folks who are out there like I want to work for insert big company name here because I want to get those chops of being a CISO for big company name here. But then think about that for a second. So you want to work at a company where you might achieve one goal for that organization. Maybe it's MFA, which should have been done from ground you know, from, from, from ground zero. Maybe it's an SDLC, which should have been done from ground zero. Maybe it's some of these basic things that should have been done from ground zero. You can do one of those at a big company. Or you can go work for a startup and build it how you want. And I think, I think there's a little bit of that, oh gosh, if I start to think about it this way, there's a lot of opportunity for you to, to set some really good precedents in your career by taking that experience and applying it in an agile fashion in a startup. You're going to work twice as hard. Like literally, I do everything from help desk to presenting to the board. And I think that that's the other thing that you talk about how many, uh, you know, what are some of the things that you have to do in a startup? But I wouldn't trade it for the world because I can literally build this thing in, in my image of cybersecurity instead of having to pitch for one or two objectives a year. How much pushback do you get in a startup environment around budgets. Look, we, I've been through these, yeah. right? Uh, it's yeah. all about revenue, cash yeah. flow, right? Yeah. And so getting the investment sometimes in the startup, it, and I don't know that it's much better in the enterprise, by the way, but <laughs> I could see you know, getting some of that investment being a little, a little tight, a little challenging yeah. in a startup. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do you address that? No, very valid. And, and, you know, I think that this is what makes the, uh, what makes the challenge, you know, we, we talk about like, uh, you know, the, the thrill of the hunt, right? Um, if you look at, if you go back and look at my, my career, I started out very, very fortunate when I was leading security operations for a, for a Fortune 100 company. I had a $50 million budget to run security operations. Like I wanted for nothing other than, you know, more SIM license, but that's a different story. Um, but I, but for most part, I wanted for nothing. Um, I then went from there to a, um, um, you know, a food and beverage company. 
And I had to build the exact same security operations team with the exact same capabilities that I built at the other company, but I had a $12 million budget to do that. So less than 50%. But we still did it. We still thought outside the box. We still looked at innovative ways to do things. We still, and we built more capabilities with that company than we did at the other one because we had a bunch of people sit around and say, how do we solve this problem? And now I'm here at a startup where I effectively have like a few thousand dollars a month or a few thousand dollars a year that I could spend on security. But you know what I'm doing? I'm putting my head down and saying, okay, what can I do? What is in my toolbox? What does exist out there? What What is the art of the possible given what I've got? And so what I think people get hung up on when we talk about budgets is there's this idea in our head that says I have to have X budget to provide X amount of security. And I think that that's where people get messed up when they start talking about budgets. The budget conversation is really about what money do you need to make the business agile, profitable, and secure the mission for where they're at right now. And when you realize that you don't have to have a SIM, you don't have to have you know you know crazy one trust you know type of infrastructure, you don't have to have all these big things that you want to try to put in place at a big enterprise, when you can start small with what do you need to do the mission today? And you go to the executive leadership and you go to the board of directors and you say, I don't need a million dollars. As a matter of fact, I'll take whatever scraps I can get off the table and I'll still do it as good as I did in a Fortune 100 company. The, the amount of clout that you can have when you go to that conversation, I think is amazing. And so what I would say to people is stop thinking in terms of budget that money is going to solve your problem. As a matter of fact, this is a little bit of a soapbox item for me. There was a recent article out that said that money, it, it has been proven that money does not make organizations more secure. And that is very, very true. And so I would argue that it's not about how much money you have. You realize how many tools are built into, if you're a SaaS product company, how many tools are built into AWS for you to secure your infrastructure? How many tools are built into GitHub for you to secure your code, right? You, there, is, there is a lot that you can do on a shoestring budget in a startup that if people would get out of their own heads, I think they'd be amazed at how much security they could actually put in and place. Neil, you're, you're, de- well, you're dead on. I mean, I w- what was just going through my head was, you know, we have so many overlaps in our security platforms these days where in many instances, if you go out and you have Microsoft E5 licensing already, because you're in the Microsoft ecosphere, you get all of those security tools. And hey, by the way, mm-hmm. you'd have your SIM too, because they have Sentinel now mm-hmm. on the back end. You can start taking advantage mm-hmm. of that. And hey, a lot of the, the O365 ingestion is free, yep. right? So yes, yep. you can get off the, you know, out of that gate with security tools in play, with just realizing the economies of scale you have with the licensing you've already bought. Mm-hmm. And it is, all, it is a lot of hard work, and I don't mean to say that it's not. I mean, I'm a one-man show running security for a, for a Series A company in addition to everything else that we've got going on. But if you're down for that type of work and you can realize the value you can bring to an organization to your point about, about proving you know, all the things that we know that happen in enterprise, tool overlap, tool, tools being on the shelf and not getting used, yep. right? When you have to learn to live off the land, so to speak, with what you've been given – from a startup and you're actually successful, you'll realize now I think, I, I, I've said this about folks that I mentor on cyber and security where I think everybody should start as incident response because you learn so much about the enterprise that you'll grow up and be a really good cyber practitioner. I think every CISO should start in a startup because when you realize how successful you can be living off the land, you will be a better enterprise CISO every day. Of the you're, you're forced to adopt the tools you're so investing you- in. Right. So many organizations mm-hmm. adopt twenty yeah, percent of the capabilities of their tools, where now you're forced to adopt, you know, eighty, ninety percent of the capability. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know what? If you're mindful and you are realizing to to Matt's point that you can't go and ask for a million dollars for X, you will make it work and you will make it secure and it'll be just fine. So Neil then that means budget should not be an excuse for enterprises to implement cybersecurity programs. But yet we see challenges on enterprises implementing programs. You can't blame money at that point. Because if you can scrap and pull it together with your Microsoft E5 or open source components, there's no excuse at the enterprise other than executive management buying. What I've always said is that our problem at the enterprise level is that we have a bunch of nerds who don't know how to talk business. What I, what I try to coach everybody on is if you want to be a better cybersecurity person, scratch all the technical stuff that you can learn and go get a business degree, right? 
until we solve the ability for 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 enterprise CISOs to be able to speak better business language to CIOs, to CFOs, and to the board, I think that this is where everybody thinks money solves all problems, and it doesn't. There isn't, you know, we've outlined here just on, on this, this conversation all the problems that come with technology, but I'm a firm believer, right, it's people process technology in that order, in that order, right? Technology is the last thing that you should be solving for in your security stack, mm-hmm. right? You fix your people problem, you have better processes, and then, then once you feel confident in those two, then you can look at your technology and see where your gaps are. And I think we have a lot of CISOs who, you know, and, and again, I think it varies, right? They've they've come from different walks of life, of background, and you know, you know. I don't think that they have spent time in the saddle. They haven't spent time as an analyst. They haven't spent time responding to incidents. They haven't spent time doing pen tests or doing threat hunting or doing, you know, you know, you know, GRC level work. They haven't spent time in that saddle. And so I think that they get inundated with, you know, vendor reach outs and marketing emails and RSA presentations and black hat presentations that say this will solve your problems. And they go, I just need to go pitch for a million dollars from the board to get that and it'll solve my problem. And so they've flipped that dichotomy around. And I think that that's, that's the, the blinders that has been put on a lot of organizations is not focusing on the people in the process first. It, yeah, it does not. Yeah, we're going to, it does not. And we're going to cover this in the data breach report from Verizon because it's the same things. Yeah. It is the people side of this, right? The reason I'm doing what I'm doing now because I love it is trying to solve the human problem. It, this is a human, this is a people problem first. When you look at the stats and you look at the breakdown of where the attacks are, are, are being propagated from, it's all coming from us. It's, it's account takeovers, it's clicking on malicious emails or websites, clicking the phishing. Like, like it's all people based. Mm-hmm. But yet we spend all this money on technology. Now I'm on my soapbox for a second. <laughs> we spend all this money on technology to try to protect everything around the human, but then we don't know how to educate the human. We don't know how to how to help the human be better in their job so that they don't do that, which opens up all the doors. And so you're right. It is a people process technology in that order problem. And I think a lot of enterprise CISOs go after the technology. Yep. They spend lots of money, but it's not really moving the needle. And, and that's why the session so interesting to me is because if you can do it mm-hmm. at a startup without those large budgets... It's not a budget problem anymore. And to your point, when you're at a startup, when you've got 10, 15, 20, 30, 50, maybe even 100 people that you're working for at a startup, um, it's a lot easier to build that culture of security. And guess what happens? Somebody else comes in, they get inundated with that culture of security. The teams get bigger, they adopt that culture of security. And what you end up with is now you're an organization that is secure by design, that is cultural by design, that is that is security is in, ingrained in your bloodstream. Now, that doesn't mean that you're never going to have a breach, you're never going to have I- issues and incidents. That's not what I'm here to pitch. But at least from a CISO perspective, you don't have to try to infuse that into an organization when you come in after the fact. And, and, and guys, that people problem is not just end-user cyber awareness. It not, it's not mm-hmm. just teaching developers to infuse security in the SDLC process, but it's also educating the other executives in your organization. That's mm-hmm. part of your people problem in your education as well, is educate the executives, educate the board, educate the CEO, mm-hmm. because that's when you start getting that top-down support, and then it truly becomes a culture. You know, when, you're, when your board of directors and your CEO are talking the talk you know, and, and, and speaking um, that mutual language that you have back and forth between the CISO and the board and the executives, now you're winning, right? Because you're handling it let, at every level. Let me piggyback on that a little bit because I think there's a, there's a nuance to that. You're not wrong, but I want to add an, an additional nuance to that. Enterprise CISOs lose a lot of trust in that education process because they, they bite off too much of the apple. They overcommit. They don't understand the culture of their organization. And so what they end up doing is, is they say, I'm going to do these five projects this year. 
And then maybe they actually really only get two done because of all the red tape and the politicking, everything else that goes in. And so then they start to lose that trust of their, their, their executive team and their senior leadership. And on top of that, they're being asked for business metrics. How is vulnerability management going to impact the dev team? What should I be concerned about? Oh, gosh, now we've had an incident and we haven't had communication. There's a lot more challenges to build that trust. And I know a lot of CISOs who have failed the test of, of being an enterprise CISO because they failed to maintain trust. And this is, again, we talk about contrasting with over a startup. You're a small team. Like you have, you have no choice but to talk to your executive team three, four, five times a week at every juncture. Like you're going to build that rapport and you're going to build that trust. And that makes it easier for me to say, hey, look, we really shouldn't do this thing because that's fundamentally insecure. We should find a different way to do it. And now you're, you have that small team mentality, that almost that Navy SEAL spec ops mentality where everybody trusts everybody else to make a decision. And that's something that's, harder to build in an enterprise than it is in a startup. You're speaking the language of what yeah. we talk about in the second segment every time we do BSW, right? It's communication and leadership. That's what we talk about the entire time. And and Matt, how often do we talk about trust, right? It's, it, it's the foundation yeah. of every relationship. We talk about it all the time. Neil, when, when you think about um, some tips for people that want to become CISOs and get an opportunity to go in, like where should they focus? Like what are some of the tips of the trade that will help them if they, if they get into one of those positions? Because I think, look, there's a lot of people that listen to the show that may not be in the chair, but want to get to the chair. And when they get there, what is it they should really focus on to be successful? Because I think that's probably the biggest challenge for first-time CISOs. Like, I haven't been here before. What are those, like, two or three things that I should really focus on to be successful? So, so um, one of the biggest things that I talk to folks about is um, when, you, when you're down at the technical, at the tactical, operational, technical levels, um, there's, a, there's very much a fear of losing that about yourself and, and that fear of stepping into management. Like, oh gosh, I don't know that I could ever be a, a manager. I don't know if I could ever be a people leader. I think the first boundary that everybody who is thinking about it has to overcome is that kind of, that, that self-identification that to be a CISO, you have to embrace now. Now, let me make something expressly clear. That does not mean that you have to forego all your technical skills. I myself have spent a lot of my personal time making sure that I maintain my technical skills. I still do penetration testing. I still do, I mean, like, look, I'm a one-man show, but yet I'm in, you know, AWS console every day doing AWS security architecture and configurations, right? And so I make it a point to myself to do that. But you have to have that switch in your head that says, I've got to start adopting management principles. I got to start thinking about people. I got to start thinking about budgets. I got to start thinking about the, the P word that everybody, hell, that everybody hates, right? Politics. You got to start thinking about the politics. And so you've got to start shifting your mindset away from um, you know, the, the technical things that you've clung to for your expertise for however many number of years. And so I think that that's, that is the biggest hurdle that people have to overcome in themselves when they say, I want to go be a CISO. I think after that, um, to the points that you made earlier, Jason, it's communication, right? And to start doing communication, you have to start putting yourself out there. Now, whether that's something as simple as going to speak at a conference, going to speak on podcasts like BSW, whether that's inside your organization asking your leadership for more opportunities to go speak in front of other executives across the organization. But you need to find a way to get your voice out there so that you can be, and this is what's going to upset a lot of people, so that you can be told you're wrong so that you could be shut down, so that you could be openly criticized for the things that you say. Because until you get slapped in the head a couple of times for having bad things to say in front of other executives, you're not going to have the learnings that you need to to be ready to sit in that chair. And so I think that there's a... Um, and think that there's a little bit of a, of a, of a painful mountain that you have to climb where you ha every mistake that you've made in your career to now will seem small and insignificant compared to the, the, the pain that you have to look forward to to sit in that chair. And I think that, that, that it takes a special mentality to sit back and say, I'm ready to adopt that pain. I want to give a really quick story. I thought I was CISO one time. Or, I'm sorry. I thought I was ready to be CISO one time. And I went out and I interviewed for CISO roles. 
And I realized how, and I, I, I was going from one Fortune 100 company to, I interviewed at three, for three CISO roles at three other Fortune 10 companies. They were huge companies. I was not prepared for the level of politics that it took to be CISO at those roles. And it, it hit me in the gut after those interview processes that I was not ready for, for the role at that point in time. And I actually did. I took a step back and I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on this one for a little bit because I'm not ready. Um, and so it does take a little bit of that gut punch for you to see that it's, it's vastly different than any role that you've ever had in your entire career. Well, one uh, one piece of advice I always tell uh, you know aspiring CISOs or technology leaders is find an executive sponsor or mentor that you can work with as well, right? Because now you can start bouncing questions and and, and have someone who's sat in the chair who can speak the language of the business and really kind of guide you through that as you start maturing through your career. Just having that someone that you can you know get advice from and and, and they can mentor you is is a huge benefit as well. Absolutely. I think, I think mentorship is something that, that is beneficial throughout your entire career. I think where a lot of people fail on that executive mentorship, though, is, um, you know, s- some mentors are too nice. They're too nice. Just, just go do this thing. Just go do Toastmasters. Just, uh, just go do a YouTube video, right? That'll, that'll be fine for you. And I, I don't think that, I don't think it gives you, I mean, both of you, I'm sure, have had those, those moments where you've sat in front of the board and said something and the board looks at you and you're kind of like, I don't think that that's right, guys. And that's a different gut punch than, than I think most people are used to. And I, I, I would only say that, yes, everybody should have a mentor. Mentorship is incredibly important. But there are some gut punches that are just going to take experience to get. You know, in, the, in that mentorship, someone who's going to be oh, candid, yeah. someone who's going to be yeah. straightforward, and someone who's yeah. going to give you a realistic view of, of what they think, right? Yeah. You, you, don't want, you don't want the soft shoe, right? You want someone yes. who's going to come in and give you, give you the reality. So that, that mentorship needs to be that. Sometimes you need tough yeah. love. You always need tough love, yes. I, I have a few uh, war wounds, um, bruises, scrapes, uh, scars. Trust me. Oh, yeah. yes. Neil, Neil, thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Is your organization finding it difficult to achieve compliance and scale its security posture? As G2's highest rated cloud compliance software, Drada streamlines your SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, HIPAA, GDPR, and many more security frameworks and provides continuous 24-hour control monitoring so you can focus on scaling securely. Drada is also the only compliance automation platform with a private tenant database. That's like having your cake and securing it too. Listeners of Business Security Weekly get 10% off Drada by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Drada. That's D-R-A-T-A. The shift to remote and hybrid work over the past two years has accelerated application development on cloud infrastructure. However, securing these new assets has lagged behind. Qualys CloudView, the next generation cloud security posture management, delivers an end-to-end multi-cloud security and compliance solution encompassing the entire application lifecycle from build to runtime. CloudView enables enterprises to assess their cloud security and compliance posture, identify risks and gaps, auto-remediate issues, proactively enforce best practices, improve compliance and audits rapidly and efficiently. Identify your most vulnerable cloud assets by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Jason Albuquerque. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Also, don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right, Jason, articles for the week. And they are going to sound pretty familiar based on the last conversation we just had with Neil. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) You know me. I try to tie the articles into the segment before. This first article is interesting, right? It talks about embracing a common business language to report on cybersecurity. But I didn't, there wasn't enough in here. You know, it talks about the SPM, the security. 
program management function, which is fine. But is that enough by itself to really create a common business language to report on cybersecurity? I just I felt there were some details missing in this article to really help guide people through this concept of how should we be talking and tying security back to business. Agreed. I mean, I think it was a very uh, it was very high level, right? It was that forty thousand foot view and didn't really dive deep enough, I think, into the details of. What does a security program management strategy consist of? I mean, it talks uh, about, you know, consistently having conversations with executives in business terms. It talks about using outcome-based uh, language when, you, when you're speaking to the leadership, um, trying to connect the security program to key business uh, objectives and priorities. But yeah, what, what does that mean? What's the detail? What are some examples, right? So, so you're right. I mean, it, it missed the mark as far as a, a little bit deeper dive that it could have had. But uh, but at the end of the day, that forty thousand foot view, exactly what we talked about in that in that previous episode in the, you know the segment um, about aligning to the business, right? That's that's number one, and and really building a strategy uh, of taking yourself out of that technical subject matter and becoming a business subject matter expert. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I brought in the second article, tips from a CISO, how to create a security program. Now here a little more specifics, right? Here's the things you should focus on. And it ties into the conversation we had with Neil, right? Uh, strategic positioning, engagement with the executive, how to build out a strong team, even though Neil's a one-man show right now. Communication is big on this list, right? These are the things that I think CISOs really need to focus on, which is you know, engagement, communication, Working with the executive team, you know, it's funny. I, I, um, you know, starting the new role, I always bring in these these kind of like real life experiences. When I came in, I said, I'm not going to do anything for the first 30 days. But you have to learn. Like you want to understand the organization. You got to understand what's going on. You you got to figure out where all the the little projects are, and and it just kind of navigate yourself through. And I, you know, I try to take that first 30 days to really get to that point, meeting with all the different executives. Dude, by the end of week two, it was super clear to me like, all right, I, I know what we need to do. And so I start working with the executive team. I go to my CEO. I start working with my, my chief revenue officer. I'm working with the VP of engineering. Like, I'm already starting that alignment across the different executive team. CISOs, you got to do the same thing. Granted, it's not exactly the same, but it a lot of it is the same kind of uh, approach and strategies to actually be successful. Of course, yeah, and, and and you know this article is great to be able to give you those different phases or approaches that you can use to to really get embedded in the business. And they actually mention it under business awareness, right? Embed yourself as part of the business. You know, start start you know getting uh, involved in different business decisions, bu- different business units, learning how the organization does business. So that way you can start assessing the current state around how those business units, you know, assess risk and look at cyber risk and and, and now you can start building your strategy and you know engaging, engaging, engaging. That's the key, right? Have your have that strategy where you're continuously engaging across the 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 enterprise with all of your business units. And, and really get to learn the way the business operates. That's how you're going to build that trust. That's how you're going to be able to build those strategies. And, you know, there's one in here that says build a strong team. And I'm a firm believer that it's not just building a team that reports into you. It's building a strong team around you as well mm-hmm. across the organization. Right, because you have team members who can be part of your team, who can be mm-hmm. evangelists for you out there in the organization in every single business unit. If you build those relationships and you make them part of your team, yeah, exactly right. And like I said, I started at the executive level. Now I'm starting that next layer of communication because it doesn't just stop at the business executive. I got to work with the engineers, the program manager, the product managers, all the different layers, right? And so, yes, once you've got that that engagement, you're starting to build your team across by getting them all on board, sharing the vision, right-sizing, getting everybody engaged. I think it's so important, Jason, to your point, right? That's how this these BISOs, this concept of uh, the BISO role comes in because you're going to find champions in those other departments that are going to be strong advocates for what you're doing, and they're going to be an extension of your team if they're not part of your direct team. 100%. And, and, if, and if you don't have 
those embedded subject matter experts within the different business units, you don't have a full team, right? You don't have a full team yet. You have a team that reports to you, but you don't have a full team. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the upside of playing favorites. Now, this is a very counterintuitive concept, right? I, I, that's why I brought it in here because I'm, I'm thinking, wait, there's upside to like playing favorites because normally this doesn't go over very well. If you p- play favorites, it usually creates more of a negative culture. But here, this HBR article talks about with the right approach, employees, managers, and leaders can build an organizational culture that celebrates positive workforce relationships and gives everyone the tools they need to grow and succeed. So it can actually be a net positive versus a net negative. Yeah. But at this point, I would, I would convert the word favorites to, to strong relationship connection and trust, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's not favoritism. It's, it's having folks on your team that you emphatically trust you have a great relationship with them and you have a connection to the point where you know you can send them off to do anything and everything you want them to do and they're going to be successful. Or they'll right. come back to you and and ask for advice or ask for direction, right? So you can trust them. So, you know, I think I think favorites is a bad connotation because I have seen leaders who play favorites and it's like on a personal level. They'll take their staff out to the bar. They'll have them over their house on weekends. They'll go out to dinner with families. Like they start to play the personal favorite side. I think from a, a business relationship piece, having folks around you that you've built that trust and have that strong relationship and connection can be positive. There's a balance there, right? Because if it start if it, if you if staff are starting to see it as a personal favoritism, that can be really really bad. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's always viewed as a negative, right? Which is why I brought this article in because who 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 thunk it? But I uh, but I do agree with you that it is about establishing relationships. It's about creating those personal connections. It's about building those relationships because at the end of the day, work is a place for us to build relationships, right? We, we do this all the time. We work with these people every single day. You want to build relationships that strengthen the overall team. And in although it, some people may think it's be playing favorites, it's not really. It's, it's about building those relationships to build a strong culture and a strong team. Exactly it. And then, and then folks on the team have, you know, have, something to achieve, right? Some, something to look forward to, you know, uh, they'll want to work toward building that strong relationship with you as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is why I took the entire product management team out to drinks. Like night, I think it was like the second night I was there. Like, like there's nothing better to build a relationship in my opinion, than grabbing some drinks and just shooting the shit. Like really, because I mean, it's, it's how you, how you, how you start to learn about people and and what's important to them and you know it's it's really interesting um you know th- that and the ability f- to do it now these days is you know it's so challenging but it was great to have everybody together that we could actually do that as a team and start to build those relationships as as a new uh employee coming in yeah it's great all right this one the strategic impact of the of Verizon data breach incident report. Now, there's a lot of great data in here. Um, and people who want to look up this article and get a good summary of what's in the DBIR, highly recommend it. They do a really good breakdown and analysis of some of the data that's in there. I'm going to focus on the long-term trends and conclusions because this shouldn't surprise a lot of people because they're pretty consistent from what we've seen in the past. But this goes back to our conversation with Neil earlier about you don't need necessarily the, the largest budget. You don't need all the tools. There's some basics in here that really revolve around people and process that are huge gaps, I think, in most sec- security programs today. So the recurrent themes. Data compromises uh, result from external attacks. Okay, we know that. The primary motive behind cybercrime is financial gain. Okay, we know that. Most breaches are caused by stolen credentials, ransomware, and phishing. Hello? Like, this is like... Uh, like, oh my gosh, this is people 101. Like, this is like the foundation of 
part of my reason to go to living security is like, this is all people-based. This is about um, better passwords, uh, multi-factor authentication, um, not clicking on the link. Like This is so fundamental to a security program. Even data management best practices, right? I mean, here here in Rhode Island, we you know last year we had one of our transit authorities uh, get breached, and and one of the places that the malactor found the most sensitive data was you know uh, an end user saved a very sensitive Excel spreadsheet down to their laptop, hmm. and that was the start of all of this you know twenty two thousand Rhode Islanders. Um, being part of this breach. So, you know, that even even down to process, we talked about it, people process technology, that was mm-hmm. a process thing, right? Right. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, that 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 end user shouldn't have been saving sensitive data down. Could there have been controls in place? Sure. But there should have been best practice and process to support it as well. Exactly right. And we're going to cover, I think the next article is about why security awareness and training is not working. It's about understanding human behavior. It's about understanding what people are doing and which of those behaviors are the most risky so that I can actually look at ways to to educate them and change that behavior. We've been talking about this for a long time, but actually doing it is something that's only recently started to really kind of bubble to the surface, Jason, right? And these are behaviors. These aren't the, you, you know, it's it's people downloading a file. Well, that means... Our policy and procedures maybe aren't clear enough on why you shouldn't do that, or uh, it, it's um, because it's just not just about security awareness and training anymore. And I think that's the big challenge here: is we've been doing security awareness and training for a long time, but yet this trend has not shifted. And I don't know how many years from the DBIR. It boils down to those three areas. I, I mean, Matt, the crazy part is is as I was reading this article, you know, I had the opportunity. Um, a couple of years ago in 20, 2020, um, you know, the organization that I worked for at the time had its own podcast and I had jumped on and I had the opportunity to, um, to interview Dave Grady and, and Jason Graff from Verizon who helped with the 2020 Deber report. Right. And I, yep. and I, you know, these items were there in 2020, mm-hmm. right. I think they had, you know, part of it was breaches were caused by, you know, not only ransomware and phishing and stolen credentials. I think we had misconfiguration as one of them back there as well, which is a very high target. But these high level items have not changed since then and probably way even before that. Right. So why are we not making any headway? Why are these still these things still bubbling to the top? Why do we keep spending more and more on technology but still not fixing the core of where the breaches are happening. Like if I'm a, if in this is something that I think about. It's like as a CISO, don't you think about how much you're spending? Is it effective? Is it working? Because obviously, from the DBIR, there are certain things that have zero, almost zero impact to fixing this. Now, okay, servers are attacked more than than any other asset. Okay. So, yes, I probably have to have some good EDR um in place to protect those devices. But all the other spend that I'm doing, is it actually working or are we just spending the money for the sake of spending the money? This is what just irks me, Jason. It's like let's go spend the money on the right stuff. If we know it's a people problem, then let's go figure out the people problem. Or the process problem. Like I, like I said in the last segment, the easy button doesn't exist. Hmm. Changing people's hearts and minds is hard. Changing yeah. process is hard. The easy one is go buy technology so that's it, that the marketing says it's going to fix it all for you, right? Why am I going to spend a year trying to influence departments to change process to just get to the point of being able to execute 12 months later to get that process to change, or am I just going to stick a piece of technology in there that says it's going to solve it for me? Well, it never does. It never yeah. does because, you know, number one, you have to have a good process for that shiny technology to work. And if your process sucks, it's not going to work. So, and then you have to have the bandwidth to adopt all the technology for it to work. And, you know, I said it in the last segment, most organizations are adopting about 20% of the technologies they spend, spend money yeah. on. So it's a recipe for disaster. It is. And uh, look, it really, if if you have a malicious employee, they're going to find a workaround anyways, <laughs> right? I think they will. Like if, but most of this is not necessarily malicious. It's just not. It's just not having strong kind of 
understanding of why it's important so that they don't do the behavior. If you have a true insider that wants to do something malicious, it's going to be hard. Just like an attacker. If an attacker comes in low and slow, very and it, nothing has to happen fast, they're going to find ways around certain controls. They just are. That's what these that's what these guys do very very well. And so Yes, in a very specific malicious insider threat or hacker, external hacker environment, you, you know, they're, they're going to find ways. But for the basics, let's let's do something that's actually going to work and stop wasting our money and all these you other know, things. And, and, and you know this over time since since I've been here on BSW. I'm, I'm a strong advocate for cyber awareness to, to the end user in the user community to be tied to their personal lives. Things that they can take mm-hmm. home and, and protect yeah. their family and their own bank account, that's all going to translate back to the workplace. It 100% will. And to be honest with you, it's going to make them pay attention more, right? And, yeah. and you don't sit there and, and, and you know have end users have to sit through an hour and a half, 90 minutes worth of cyber awareness training that's you know click a button, watch a video, take a quiz. No, it's got to be these quick, modern. I mean, we live in an instant gratification society. Our our society lives off of Instagram and, and and Twitter and Snapchat. And I mean, you know, we need to have these quick one minute videos that mm-hmm. make an impact really fast. Something people can read in a, 150 characters, right? To make make an impact. And if they want to, if they want to dive in deeper, provide a link with some more knowledge. But we have to have these quick education uh, mediums that we're putting in front of people for, for it to make an impact. Yeah. And if you can tie them to behavior, even yeah. better because it's reinforcing. Article number five, cybersecurity training boring and largely ignored. Two-thirds of employees don't bother to pay attention to cybersecurity training, and the fault does not lie with them. Duh. <laughs> That's it. Agreed. <laughs> what we just said. Boom. <laughs> Rewind the last 30 seconds and replay it. <laughs> Exactly right. I I mean, it's just so obvious because if it were working, like the DPI report would be different. Like the data, the trends in there would be different and they're not because, oh, anyways. You know, Uh, maybe, maybe this is the same. Maybe it's a symptom of the same actions that we take in, 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 you know, cybersecurity in general, um, where we've always, we talked about it earlier, where many organizations are compliance focused. Yep. Well, their cyber awareness is a compliance metric, right? Stop yes. being compliance focused. Exactly really be right. out there to change, be out there to change the outcome and change yeah. hearts and minds and educate people on how to behave differently. Yeah, because just because I have to do annual training because of a compliance requirement doesn't mean that anybody's paying attention and it's moving the needle. But if you can associate training to known behaviors, to try to change and influence behavior, the behavior, the tie to the behavior and the reinforcement of the training will start to make an impact, right? That's how we're going to change this. You're, you're exactly right. It's, it's not the compliance mentality here. It is truly about understanding risky behavior and, and allowing training to be very targeted. Yeah. And, and Matt, I'm connecting the dots, right? It's not an easy button. You just don't go out and get this platform that has all this, you know, prefab education that's not tied to your company. And you know what I mean? Like, it's like, mm-hmm. you, you can't just go out there and buy just a generic platform. You have to, you have to have a business partner who can come in and help you with cyber awareness. If that's the avenue you want to take, it's not an easy button. Correct. It's not an easy button. And use cases vary customer to customer, Jason. That's the other yeah, thing, exactly. right? Maybe in your organization, it's about third-party risk. That's a different use case mm-hmm. than account takeover, which is a different right. use case than insider threat. You also have to get very focused around what problems are you trying to solve and then the best way to solve those problems based on a, a much broader population. And it, it And it's not just awareness and training. There's a lot of other variables that go into the model that have to be accounted for. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Uh, Last article, Jason, is make shy employees part of your cybersecurity strategy. And and I was thinking about this. And, you know, when you meet new people, you start to understand kind of, you know, who are those people that are a little more... uh, you know, introverts versus extroverts, mm-hmm. right? In, in the in the in the terminology that they use, some people are very comfortable in public and being out there. Others aren't. And this article really focuses on those people that aren't 
they're not antisocial, but they're they're a little more um, they they kind of keep to themselves. But they're an important part of a cybersecurity strategy. So this article talks about how do you involve them? How do you get them to buy in to aspects yeah. of the cybersecurity program and the strategies? And this article lays out a few good tips on on how to do sure. that. Um, and and a lot of it again, it goes back to communication, folks. And like you know, smaller groups and knowing your audience. Knowing yeah, ex- audience, right? yeah, and different channels for communication. Like right. again, all this though just kind of went right back to a communication discussion. <laughs> it, it, totally right. I, I mean, at the end of the day, diversity in general in your cybersecurity strategy is extremely important, right? Diversity in general, and then knowing that folks communicate differently and are, are and are comfortable with different things, you, you make sure you want to handle that, right? I mean, um, if you can get some folks who, who could ha- bring really good opinions to the table, but mm-hmm. you know that, that they're, they're, they're a little bit more introverted, have small subcommittee groups, have, have, yep. you know, a handful of people in a room where you can have conversations open. You know, one of, one of the things I did in my organization, we, you know, we kept it, we kept it, um, small, and this is for the company as a whole, but it could work for cybersecurity as well, is we have an employee advisory board that we started, right? Mm. Where it's, you know, six or seven people. We wanted, you know, diverse diversity across the organization. And I'll tell you, a lot of people when they started were introverted, very introverted. And they, you know, until they got comfortable with having conversations, it took, you know, a few months mm-hmm. for them to actually open up. And now it's incredible. You know, some of the folks that I thought were the most introverted in the organization are now you know, key stakeholders in the group with great ideas and great strategies that we can bring to the table. And that, that can work in cybersecurity as well. Have small advisory groups that you can put out there. Yeah. Cause not everybody's going to feel comfortable in a large group to kind of put it out there. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why I use one-on-ones as well as small team meetings is mechanisms because in a one-on-one you can have a very um, direct conversation understand kind of what's important to them, bring that into a small group discussion before it gets put into a larger group because some people don't feel comfortable in the larger group settings. And so you just have to understand that and and build your meeting structures and your communication structures around those different sizes. 100% diversity is key. So make sure you're including those folks who may not be comfortable speaking out there in, in, in front of the whole team. Exactly right. Jason, Always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you everyone for watching and listening. We'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly.